Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guests today on the Art of Range are Derek Scasta with the University of Wyoming and Jeff Goodwin with Texas A&M, formerly with the Noble Foundation. Uh, they're part of a, a large-scale grant-funded project called Metrics Management and Monitoring, an investigation of pasture and range land soil health and its drivers. That's a pretty lofty title. There's an awful lot of talk right now about soil health and how to improve it. And some of the talk is quite confident, and there's enough mostly, I think, good-natured controversy that uh, this topic is definitely worth investigating. Uh, Jeff and Derek, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tip. Happy to be here. Yeah, thank you, Tip. Uh, b- before we get into the the project, let's do some brief self-introduction so that listeners know who they're listening to. Uh, Derek, what's your background, and how did you end up as a range scientist? Yeah, Tip. So um, I'm originally from Texas and um, did my undergrad degree at Texas A&M University and really was interested in kind of ranching, um, probably because of my my two sets of grandparents. Um, and so, you know, had an interest in animals um, and then got more interested in the land. And um, from there, I became a county extension agent uh, with the Texas A&M system. As a matter of fact, that's where I first met Jeff. Uh, we worked pretty close together when he was within RCS and um, ended up doing a master's at Texas Tech University and then my PhD at Oklahoma State University um, because I really wanted to get more detailed in what I was doing on rangeland type of work and um, really just appreciate, yeah, the, the soil and plants that support uh, livestock grazing. And um, moved to the University of Wyoming in 2014. Uh, Wyoming is um, primarily a rangeland state because of the soils and the climate. And so I work on a wide variety of range issues. Um, a lot of times it's those really kind of controversial issues, um, predators eating livestock, uh, grazing permit renewal, and then increasingly um, a focus on environmental aspects of grazing. And we've been doing a little bit of work on soil health and so, um, yeah, this is kind of falling in line with some some direction we're going here. Yeah, and you, Jeff? Yeah, I um, been you know, got a bachelor's degree and and master's degree through Tarleton State University in range and ranch management. And um, early on in my career, I, um, I wanted to 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 work on ranches, you know, and I wanted to work with ranchers. So. Um, I started working with the USDA NRCS and I worked for, for that organization through, uh, you know, developing conservation plans and implementing farm bill, um, uh, dollars on, on rangeland acres all across the state of Texas. I ultimately worked my way up to the state rangeland management position, um, in 2016, uh, um, and it, it's a great, it's a great opportunity really to, to work, um, work with, uh, work with a lot of great landowners and, and, uh, but, I, but I had an opportunity in 2016 to go work for Noble Research Institute. And so, um, made the move to Ardmore, uh, really, uh, 
jumped in with both feet working with ranchers from Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas on on just really focusing on that grazing land uh, soil health component. And that that they allowed me to really dive into that. And uh, I really wanted to to better understand how do we bring data to the table to better understand uh, or make these these inferences that we we hear. Um, and so so tying that together, I had the opportunity to continue and uh, work on a PhD, and I'm about to wrap that up um, through Texas A&M Kingsville. Um, and so, yeah, worked with Noble through this process to uh, really this, the whole impetus of this whole project started in about two, 2017. Um, we can get into that in a minute. But, uh, yeah, I was at Noble through uh, for about five years. And uh, in November, I recently accepted a position with Texas A&M University to come down and help start the the new Center for Grazing Lands and Ranch Management here in College Station. So I'm happy to be here and we're collaborating very closely with Noble and all of our partners on this project. Good. Thank you. Yeah, some of that's news to me and I'm glad to hear about it. As I mentioned before, the the scope of the title of this project is really large. It seems to me that if you had a group of 10 soil and range scientists in a room, you'd get at least 24 different opinions about what works and what doesn't and how we should evaluate it. And this topic of soil health uh, is just, I mean, it spans microbiological communities and interactions with plants, soil disturbance regimes and history, plant community diversity, the effects of livestock, manure, compaction, soil organic matter. And, you know, every single one of those topics is worthy of a book length research summary and there's advocacy and there's gray literature. Uh, are you trying to cut through some of that with this project? What are the goals of this, uh, you know, large titled multifaceted project? Um, I'll take a stab, Derek. Um, I, you know, overarchingly we, we want to be able to better, um, have an understanding of what those interactions are across the rangeland and pasture space. I mean, when we step back and look at um, what we what, what we consider the the soil health movement, if you will, over the past ten or fifteen years, primarily most of that's been focused in the cropland space, and um, I, at least at least recently, I mean, we've been working in in uh, uh, in rangelands for a long time, and we've been we've been understanding the impacts of of management on plant community dynamics and and soil dynamic properties and things of this nature but pulling it together from a uh, with a the soil health sort of focus um cropland's gotten a lot of that focus lately and so much of the the impetus for this project was to put more shine that light back on the graze on the 655 million acres of grazing lands um, that are across our country and help us really to put some data behind some of the impacts that we're seeing. So really we wanted to be able to quantify those metrics, right? Uh, everything from this, from the soils through the, the, those, those microbial, um, interactions. Um, but, uh, the, the soil health metrics that we all hear and talk about all the way through the plant, com- plant community dynamics, all the way up those linkages between soils, plants, animals, and ultimately, 
um, the human because we, what what we I think we found is that we can't really disconnect um, the the implement the implementation of these management strategies by taking the human out of the situation. Um, the 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 landowner the manager is is really um, has a tremendous amount of opportunity to impact these systems, and so having a disconnect there um, is really a disservice to understanding the science. And so, and so not only are we interested in the, in the ecologic impacts of management in these systems, but also the socioeconomic drivers that help producers um, help what's what's helping them decide what they want to do on a daily basis. I mean, is, is this information going to help them um, make a better, a more informed decision? Are we going to be, what's driving their decision-making and ultimately having this information as a feedback tool um, to better inform those, those decisions in the future is, is really one of the primary drivers. I'll stop there, Derek. You may have some things to add. No, I, I think that was a good overview, Jeff. And I, I think, you know, circling back to the managers is a is an important emphasis of, of this effort. Certainly, there's some really awesome, you know, biological science that's going to happen. But we also have these uh, sociologists and human dimensions folks on our team. And the time is right um, to really engage on that that side of it, because, you know, that determines how those decisions are made. Um, and then, you know, the provision of ecosystem services on these rangelands is tremendous. Um, but the ranchers right now, the ranching community has a lot of questions about all of these kind of soil dynamics in the context of their management. Um, and they, they've kind of been underserved in a way, you, you know, historically we would say, well, take a soil test and send it into a lab and the output they would get would be a nitrogen fertilizer recommendation uh, with a corn, uh, a bushel of corn target. And so what we really need to work on, and I think this is what this project is going to do, it's going to bring all of this information. It's going to help us develop those tools, as Jeff, Jeff alluded to, to make s- soil health more practically applied for ranching and rangelands and pasture lands. And I think... Um, that's what is really exciting to me. And when I talk to um, ranchers in Wyoming and surrounding states, man, they are eager. They are eager to be engaged on this topic uh, more than I've ever um, experienced. So, Yeah, I think I sense the same thing. Uh, you mentioned a minute ago that pasture and range is 655 million acres in the U.S. and that that is approximately 41% of the land use more than cropland and timberlands. I think that would surprise some people, even some of us who are in this social sphere of range and livestock people. Uh, that makes me, I, I find that myself and a lot of range people, I see kind of in this, in this middle space between, um, between what Barry Perryman calls the pristine management paradigm you know, the idea that if humans just walk away from a given land situation, that it'll, it'll somehow return eventually to a pre-Columbian ecological nirvana. And all we have to do is leave it alone and nature will heal itself. And we've 
I would say that it's pretty well established now through solid range science that you know we have these multiple pathways that succession can take. Uh, and in our job, I think we have some responsibility to try to be responsible about directing some of that succession and uh, shifting it away from some of the less desirable pathways. Uh, but I see even the history of the Noble Institute, I think, addressing some of these things. If I'm recalling correctly, uh, the Noble Research Foundation was established in the aftermath of the Dust Bowl, uh, actually reestablishing perennial pasture in places that I think had been uh, used heavily for cotton for many years. And and there's a so there's you know nearly a century of history of uh, trying to stabilize soil and improve soil health, specifically through smart management of of lands raised for livestock. Am I remembering that correctly, Jeff? Yeah, Noble uh, Noble used, was the Samuel Roberts Noble Foundation, and it was founded in uh, 1945 um and you know they've been around for 75 plus years and um working with producers on 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 a number of issues uh and in 2017 however uh samuel roberts noble foundation decided to um split the organization the the robert the the, the endowment is still held through the the, the foundation um, but the organization decided to develop the, the Noble Research Institute, which really is the the operational um, arm of of Noble, and so uh, and, and they are they have refocused all of their efforts recently on on focusing on regenerative grazing land stewardship, essentially um, focusing on those 655 million acres that we referenced um, and, and really trying to find practical applied solutions for landowners that are ranch scale and um, that drive lasting profitability. Um, so, so that's, that's been their focus and that's the reason that Noble's interested in, and, and um, that's the reason they're putting up seven, seven and a half million dollars to help support this this uh, project um one, one more thing that I, if i might just kind of touch by, base back on some of the objectives for this work is we talked a little bit about uh some of the individual metrics and i think i think we we often try to we often fall into a, a little bit of a trap um when we start thinking about metrics and um I don't want to say that we get myopic in our thinking, but sometimes we get pretty singularly tracked and we're only looking at carbon or we're only looking at water or we're only looking at the plants or, you know, one of the things that we're going to strive to better understand in this study is to better understand those linkages between all of those systems, um, and and at least the systems that we're currently studying, and then more more aptly be able to scale that understanding. So, one of the reasons is we, we've got we've got this large gradient of aridity that that is setting the foundation for the intensively measured sites, right? So, Michigan. Um, Texas, Oklahoma, and Wyoming, and so we've got a, a a broad a broad reach of 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 variability there from an environmental perspective, and and so 
intensively studying all of the 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 carbon work, and it's not just soil carbon cores. Um, we are working with some of the best researchers on planet Earth on the carbon side uh, with Dr. Francesca Catrufo at Colorado State, Dr. Keith Postian in Colorado State, uh, and their teams are working with us on de- further developing their MIMS models. And we're also working with um, a company called Quantera out of the UK that's helping us to uh, work through the eddy covariance flux data. So we'll be looking at not only just soil carbon um, sequestration and organic matter dynamics, but also um, full scale carbon fluxes in these systems. And so... So it's not just how much we're putting into the ground that some, uh, you know, an aggregator may want to compensate a, a producer for, for a market perspective. This is more about understanding our management's role on the carbon in, in the system as a whole. And so, and then, then as we begin to, to understand these metrics and, um, and, um, look at these interactions and linkages across the plant d- dynamics, we start to bring in the remote sensing components, and we've, we're working closely with uh, Dr. Martha Anderson, Dr. Uh, Justin Derner, um, with ARS, at looking at, at how do we how do we develop these better tools to be able to uh, utilize remote sensing to be able to scale our understanding across these vast rangeland systems. We're we're never going to scale this thing with us and a shovel. Right. So we're going to have to have better tools to be able to to be able to to better understand and interpret what we're seeing and then provide actionable, informative uh, information that we can provide back to a landowner so they can make a better decision. That's what the that's what this is all about at the end of the day. Yeah, that's exciting. It appears that with, you know, somewhere near 20 million dollars of funding and a pretty impressive list of research partners, uh, there probably is enough horsepower to pull off uh, those lofty goals. Um, we've maybe danced around it some, but I'd like to spend just a couple more minutes discussing how the effort came together because that's a broad list of, of people. And I know how much work it takes to try to coordinate and integrate something like this. Sure. Yeah. So in, in 2017, we were, uh, actually, my good friend Chad Ellis and I, when Chad worked at uh, at Noble, we were working together uh, and working closely with Dr. Keith Lakeisha Odom at at the Foundation for Food and Ag Research, and um, and we were we we held a convening at uh, at Noble just to to really focus in on on some of this uh, some of the impacts. Um, we worked also with Christy Masco early on. Uh, with the uh, Sustainable Rangelands Roundtable, and uh, just working through some of the ideas of of what what could we do in a space here um, in in the rangeland space to really to really understand everything we've been talking about, and so it it sort of evolved and 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 you know time happens and you know 2020 and everything else between now and then um, sort of worked its way through but uh, in uh, at the, about the same time um, noble was transitioning to the noble research institute with their focus of of regenerative land stewardship on grazing lands um, this opportunity was kind of coming to the table and um, our our president, uh, the president of the Noble Research Institute, Mr. Steve Rines, was very interested in in developing a project 
And at the time, um, he asked me to work uh, directly with uh, uh, a colleague of mine that I've known for a, a while that, that uh, uh, Derek knows well, Dr. Uh, Jason Roundtree at Michigan State University, who's co-director of this project. And uh, we just started started working through the process of outlining the, the, the key takeaways and priorities and building the team. Um, we've got a, we've got a, we, we pretty immediately brought Derek onto the team and, and then started to put together the, 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 the infrastructure of what it's going to take to maybe answer some of these questions or, or, uh, you know, put up, put a solid effort at, um, at being able to, to put the data behind the science or, or and, and that's really where uh, we started to bring together um, a lot of the other nonprofits that are with us too. TNC's uh, participating with us. The National Grazing Land Coalition is tied in to, with us, the Savory Institute, um, Snaplands LLC. Um, we've mentioned another, some of the other partners, Texas A&M, of course. Um, but one, one of the key takeaways here is that, that, we, I don't really want to get lost here that we really haven't mentioned is we've got these three intensive sites that we're focusing our efforts on. But when we start to scale our understanding, we can't just scale it into the abyss, right? So we're, we'll be working with 60 ranchers across the country, um, 20 in each of these primary geographic regions, um, to be able to, to test our models, right? To be able to, uh, take what we've learned in these intensive sites where we're looking at using uh, stock density, if you will, or, or uh, prescriptive versus adaptive grazing approaches to create gradients um, and, and looking at how those um, how those how those metrics that we pull here, how they scale to these uh, 60 producers that are that are. Real, we're not going in trying to change their management, but we want to be able to mo- to make sure that we can most aptly measure what they are doing. That's the key here is um, is is to to understand all of the the keys and the interactions um, and the the in- the, the, the data that we're pulling, um, can we can we accurately measure it on these ranches? And and that's how we're going to be able to to tie in and start scaling this up. Derek, you may want to jump in on the producer piece. Yeah. Well, I, I just wanted to add to that. Um, you know, as we started to have some of these discussions, we also talked about uh, encapsulating the gradient of different types of rangelands and pasture lands. And so that's kind of how Wyoming became involved was, you know, how do we have kind of these, these Western rangelands also um, incorporated. And um, so, that gradient is really important, you know, because it's that environmental context, I think, that can really determine how um, the soil, the vegetation, um, these other indicators respond to management. And so, you know, rather than, say, advocating for for one management strategy or another, we're really trying to understand the, the variation across these um, ecosystems. And then have kind of regionally relevant uh, grazing practices so that we can start to customize, you know, the, the advising and, and um, information we provide to producers. And so the other thing is on producer well-being. you know, that's a, that's a really big deal right now. Um, You know, times have been pretty stressful for a lot of different reasons, but 
agricultural producers are kind of catching it from from all sides. There's a lot of criticism about um, the environment, about you know food production, you know, the use of let's say antibiotics, um, competition from from meat that's not derived from animals. And so, if we can bring to the table uh, better information on this topic, and like Jeff was saying, n- not just a single single indicator, which is, can be a ditch we run off into, but rather understanding the complexity of, of soil health responses. I think that's going to be pretty um, key and kind of let that data then kind of guide, you know, thinking about management. Yeah. In the summary document, you say that farmers and ranchers have been implementing soil health principles that have improved the health of their land, but that the evidence for the improvement has been mostly anecdotal. Uh, how would you summarize the anecdotal benefits of implementing soil health principles in in the run up to this uh, grant effort, you know what? How would you characterize what uh, livestock producers are saying are the the benefits in terms of soil health that they that they believe they see? Well, I, I mean, just just briefly, um, you know, we we hear that we hear often that that if we increase our organic matter we're going to increase um, water holding capacity in our soils and you know there's these these uh, blanket numbers being thrown out there with a high level of confidence and um, I, I I think that anytime that we we actually sit back and look at the complexity of a of of at least even a soils map will tell you, um, that's, it's likely that, uh, we should, there's some variability associated with a lot of those numbers. Um, soil carbon, uh, sequestration is another one. Um, there's, there's, you know, conflicting sort of data out there on, on the impact of grazing management. Um, and certainly, um, there's a lot of really good data out there. There's a lot of, um, you know, I, I think there's a there's a bigger story to tell here that that climate is a bit of a driver in this system too, especially west of the hundredth meridian. Um, and so, um, there, there's some there's some anecdotal, um, but it's it's the it's the emotion that has to be taken out of the system, right? Um, that's why we want to bring the the information and the data, and and um, a lot of times when you see good things happen, it makes you feel good, right? Well, that, that mm-hmm. leads to seeing what you want to see. And, um, I'm, I'm the biggest, I'll, I'm a proponent of, of managing for healthy soils. It's a foundation of all of our terrestrial ecosystems. I mean, it's, it makes complete sense for me to, to manage that way, but, you know, we want to, we want to be able to do it in a smart way so that we can, we can better understand the complexities, but also, balancing balancing the fact that these people are small businesses and they have to make a living and and economic viability is paramount as well yeah and, and i think um a lot of ranchers i mean they they have a conservation ethic right i mean they quite often understand look the land is the resource base that is supporting my livestock enterprise and if i'm going to sustain that into the future for the next generation you know, I need to be a good steward of that. I think a lot of the anecdotal evidence that they see is what we might often consider rangeland health indicators. Am mm-hmm. I reducing erosion and runoff? Am I increasing perennial 
um, native grass cover. You know, th- those are certainly positive um, influences on the, the soil plant interface. And they may not always have that quantitative um, number where they didn't um, run a bunch of uh, plots um, and take a bunch of estimates, but they do have you know an eye for that. I think what we're going to move the needle on here is we're going to come alongside producers. We're also going to have some intensively managed kind of institutional ranch properties, and we're going to start to really quantify those values as well as some other indicators other indicators that like jeff alluded to might be marketable maybe uh carbon credits are something that you know um uh, an enterprise and we have folks in wyoming that um, have marketed and received payments for those so you know this anecdotal thing you know is, is not necessarily good or bad but but it is what folks look at as they get their boots on the ground and think about their management but they desire more quantitative information and they're not getting that from just a standard soil test necessarily. And then they don't know, they don't know which indicator to pay attention to sometimes. And so we're going to dial that in a little bit more um, for those producers to see how does that, how does that um, influence and then take to the next level, you know, regenerative rangeland agriculture with an eye um, on soils. Yeah. So I think what part of what I'm hearing is that maintaining rangeland health, uh, particularly in situations where maybe it hasn't been, um, great is good, but that's more like holding the line rather than, uh, boosting or amplifying soil health in a way that say increases the output of some ecosystem service. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. So, Let's say Jeff and I have producers we're working with in our respective regions, and they really want to know about um, carbon. And maybe they really want to know, okay, are we storing carbon? Well, that that's great. Are we accumulating carbon? Well, that's a different question. At right. what rate are we accumulating carbon in, in my environment, which is high elevation, cold, as opposed to Jeff's environment, which is music and warm. And so, you know, that, that's what we need to answer. And then what's the time scale that things are realizable, you know, because nutrients cycle very slowly in my environment. I mean, we're, we're extremely cold. Um, they mm-hmm. cycle more rapidly, you know, in Jeff's environment. So that's where that regionally appropriate um, information is going to come in. And like you're saying, Tip, yeah, maybe we've been holding the line. We've been good stewards, but we don't even know the upside potential of some other objectives maybe we would hope to achieve with some management. And that's what we're going to put some numbers to, I think. Yeah, I'm trying to think through in my own head here to what extent there's a a bit of a chicken and egg situation or it feels like that. Maybe it's just a two-stage research process, but you know, identifying accurate and reliable indicators of soil health is something different from research that's determining how specific agricultural or grazing practices influence those reliable indicators of soil health and or carbon sequestration. It sounds like you're trying to do both of that. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a fair statement. Uh, but I, I think I'm also hearing that there's likely enough research out there that uh, there are some 
accepted indicators of soil health already. Uh, you mentioned back in the beginning, I think, Jeff, that Quantera was working on this EVO flux data. Uh, I didn't even know what EVO meant until you said the word, but after you said the word, <laughs> I couldn't catch it long enough to write it down to repeat it in a later question. Can you describe, so I guess there's a couple questions there. One is, what are some of the, the actual direct measurements of soil health that you're looking at already that are different from what you get in a standard soil test? Uh, and and how are some of those things measured? Another new maybe new ones, I'm not a soil scientist, so maybe EVO is a really common term that I just don't know about yet, but can you describe some of those? Yeah, so the, the plant interactions piece, the land management piece where we're going to be the land monitoring piece is going to be done through uh, working collaboratively with the, the Savory's Ecological Outcome Verification Program. So it's, the, their, it's their EOV platform. Uh, and it's not the only one that we're going to be evaluating. Uh, there's other uh, monitoring uh, processes that we're going to be evaluating as well, um, but but primarily, what we're going to be looking at is is the short term and the long term indicators established through the ecological outcome verification um, metrics through uh, Savory's work uh, program, and so it looks at at everything from plant community d- dynamics. Um, to, from the from the perspective of you know uh, cool season grasses versus warm season grasses and and um, it, soil infiltration tests um, we do the, the we also look at the Haney test as well so we can look at water extractable organic nitrogen water extractable organic carbon um, certainly the metrics that Dr. Hank Rick Haney has put together in that test are are um, they tell a they tell a a, a much different story uh, to 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 Derek's point on the on the typical kind of um, you know agronomic based soil test that you get um, uh, you know it, it shows you it, it provides you a lot better in uh, insight into um, carbon that's available for microbial function um, and so when we, we look at some of these other other ideas and metrics around soil health. So you, we, you, the EOV process has done a really good job of, I, I think, of of um, having a a very qualitative uh, or quantitative focused long term um, uh, monitoring site protocol, uh, and then they have they do a lot of short-term monitoring sites that look at much more qualitative uh, kind of metrics. And it's really, those are, are, are built to fit the producer. The producer can go out and, and really uh, get into some of these easy, uh, more tangible metrics to be able to understand and, and, and see changes in a shorter uh, time frame. Um, as opposed to, you know, these lagging indicators like organic matter change, no one's ever going to see that. But can they see litter movement? Can they see, uh, uh, you know, accrual or, or, or uh, reels or, or, you know, evidence of, of erosion, things like that? Um, those are things. And, and a lot of these metrics are tied in with rangeland health as well, the rangeland health assessment. A lot of them are very similar. Um, and so, but... Savory's been using that. They've got it. They've got that 
program um, on millions of acres across the world currently. And so we decided to, to go with that monitoring framework uh, to, to, to monitor the, the land management aspect here and then tie in many of those metrics with this whole concept of tying, the, tying it into the, the remotely sensed interpretation. Is that kind of where you were going with that? Yes, that was my question. And I think some of the remotely sensed data will be especially applicable on rangelands. I've done a fair bit of uh, long-term rangeland health monitoring using a variety of different systems and have been pretty frustrated with uh, the inability to feel like you're capturing anything useful that's going to change. And of course, in a lot of situations where if you're starting with decent rangeland health and after 15 years of implementing good grazing practices, you still have decent rangeland health. You're not expecting a lot of things to change. And that's uh, that should be something that's positive. Uh, but I also think that it's difficult to capture that at the, at the micro scale without a ton of sampling. And I've, I've been a big fan of the rangeland analysis platform and a couple other ones like it where you've got uh, – you know, landscape scale, full coverage, cover data that provides at least one uh, one set of indicators uh, that can be useful over time. Hey, Tip, the comments you were making there um, kind of brought a thought to my mind too. And I think this really differentiates this kind of soil health um, trajectory on rangelands. Um, and it distinguishes it from from what's happened in the the cropland world, and and that is that yeah the history of the land that you were getting at, and so in croplands, you know if we increase litter, um, move to more conservation tillage approach by reducing the number of times we're we're turning the soil, and even moving into perennial stuff, we can make really rapid enhancements. Right, it's very detectable. Um, there's some papers that have really capitalized on that and, and been published, but, but the and reality is, is uniform. right. Every, right. Every square foot is, you know, similar soil type. It's all been mixed up. You've got equal treatments. And so you take, you know, if you're analyzing data across a hundred points, they're all going to be pretty similar. Whereas right. on rangeland, you could take a hundred points and every single one of them is different. Exactly. Exactly. So, so the complexity and then the starting point on a, on a lot of rangelands, it's not that land that is necessarily highly disturbed, right? Like in a, in a crop uh, cropping scenario. And so that starting point and that land history really is relevant to, you know, any possible changes. Um, if we moved into range, it's very degraded. You know, the upside potential might be pretty dramatic as opposed to very well managed rangelands. And I think that's going to be important as we work with producers because we're going to we're going to have a lot of ranches at, at a lot of different places, a lot of different stages. And so um, that that makes this rangeland soil health uh, business quite a bit different than what's been done in, in row crop agriculture. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, the irony, which has been pointed out before is that on rangelands, you know, you have significantly higher carbon sequestration potential on degraded rangelands because any effort uh, to improve some of these ecological processes going on at the plant soil interface are are going to make um, an appreciable difference. And so the 
you know, like the for a while they were maybe there still are contracts on the climate exchange for a carbon sequestration, and they paid at a higher rate on rangelands that had a lower rangeland health score because there was greater potential for sequestration. Mm, yeah. Yep. That starting point from when you start to measure things is really pretty um, contextually relevant to, to what may happen. Yeah. Maybe some of this, the details of the research haven't been worked out yet, but I'm curious what kind of specific agricultural or grazing practices that uh, are intended to influence soil health are you planning on applying in the structured research? What, what treatments are planned? Well, I think I think one one thing we need to make sure we clear up is there's kind of two sides to this. One of those is our very intensive research ranch uh, investigations, and that is where we are going to manipulate grazing management. We're going to have a, a really um, in depth suite of things we're going to measure. So that's going to include a ranch at the University of Wyoming. Um, two ranch properties at the Noble Research Institute, and then a ranch property um, with Michigan State University, um, kind of in the northern part of the state. Um, there, we're, we're going to um, alter uh, grazing density or stock density um, anywhere from two to fourfold. Um, and that, that is really kind of what we're going to contrast. And we're really not, not aiming to, say, advocate for this practice or that practice really trying to understand a, gra a gradient of intensities and how, um, you know, the soil and plants respond. That's the intensive side. On the producer cooperator side, we're going we're gonna to come in alongside of them and understand how they're grazing. And we're going to probably have all sorts of grazing management that you could imagine. I know folks I've talked to, you know, some are like, look, I contract and bring in steers, um, just kind of a seasonal, continuous type of grazing. Others are very much in a more intensive, um, rotational type of program. So, um, Jeff, I'll let you jump in on that. Yeah, I was just um, – I think you did a great job at, at kind of focusing um, on, on those on those intensive sites, those three sites uh, that we were talking about, the three universities. I mean, we're, we, we're trying to create the gradient, right, uh, within our own context – and so within the context of, of a, the Southern Great Plains, how can we create that gradient of, of, of management? And so one treatment will be very, very um, prescriptive, low-density, low um, very prescriptive management, calendar-timed rotations, you know, pretty typical um, uh, low intensity management. And the other one will be using higher stock densities and very adaptive management. And the, the forage resource will be telling us, you know, when we, when we come back and, and, and really driving the recovery days. And so that's the focus on those. And then to, uh, to Derek's point, we create those, those regional gradients and then build in, um, the, the producer ranches that we're going to be working with, they fill in the gradient, right? And so we're not going out to tell them how to graze. We want to be able to most aptly measure how they graze, measure the responses. Excuse me. Oh, I like that. I, uh, that kind of a two-part approach where there's both the, the case study research, 
where you have people with established practices that have produced results already, whatever that might be. You know, somebody's been managing at within, you know, at this point on the gradient in this particular environment for 25 years. What did that do? And then, and identifying people that are at different places on those gradients or with different treatments. And then the classic scientific method at the intensive research sites where you're manipulating a variable or a few variables to measure what happens. I think that's a, a brilliant approach. Exactly. Yep. You, you got it. Their tip. Uh, what is the timeline on the project? Are you in year one or year five? And, and how long is this going to stretch out for? Because it takes a while to measure some of these things. Yeah, it's a five-year project. And um, we're, we're just now getting, getting the ball rolling. Uh, we plan to have... We plan to have our our flux towers installed, um, and just to kind of give you a little bit of an idea of the magnitude, um, we're going to have we're going to have fifty eight flux towers um, across the country um, tied in on all these ranches and these in- individual sites. Um, so we're going to have a tremendous amount of information coming in off these properties. But the the goal is to get the first. Uh, 28 towers out this year on the three uh, the three sites uh, the first part of this year and start actually getting our baseline data developed and and the first year we'll be um, getting our intensive sites up and rolling and then we'll be identifying producer participants and uh, enrolling them as well so you're exactly right some of these metrics are lagging they take they take time to uh, to, to um, sort of um, happen. Um, organic matter doesn't, uh, you know, carbon doesn't sequester overnight. I guess it does. It, we just can't measure it that fast, right? Um, but uh, point is, uh, we're, we're working through the process of getting everything lined up. Uh, one, of the, one of the key things that I think is it, we, we, we sort of talked a little bit about the producer well-being piece the, the economic evaluations that are going to be tied into this um, uh, this study as well is, uh, to me, I think are going to be pretty important. Um, you know, when we start measuring the the, ap- the actual management that these producers are doing, and then we tie in the uh, their their willingness to help us tie in the economic metrics. Uh, to these and, and start tying the economic metrics with the ecologic metrics, we can start to tell a whole lot better story um, to, to these producers that are trying to make a decision of whether or not they want to go down this path of managing this way. Um, I think too often um, we've 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 balanced we, we've had an imbalance of our information where we focus it we focus. Um, you know, we provide them all the ecological information in the book, but we don't have the economic data to back it up to say, okay, that's all fine and good, but it's not going to make me any money. Um, we're hoping to change that with this with this project. Yeah, Jeff, I, I think that's what's exciting. And you, you said the word linkages at the very beginning of the podcast, but right, we're going to link soils, forage, livestock, producer decision-making, and then economics and sustainability. You think about those five kind of tiers or hierarchies, those are generally not all connected in a, in a single effort. And that, man, that is uh, invaluable in this case. The other thing is five years of funding is unprecedented. Even uh, federal grant funding, 
you know, cycles are generally not of that duration, often three years. So um, pretty unprecedented. Um, yeah, duration of the project there. Yeah, I was going to say something or ask a question a little bit earlier, and maybe this is a good time to come full circle. Uh, we said that range and pasture is 41% of the land in the United States. And the importance of caring for those lands well is a big deal. But I think a lot of people hear things like social research and rancher well-being, and they see, you know, fuzziness, feelings, something that's not research. But but I don't want to gloss over that. I think that is a, a very big point because whether or not those lands stay in a condition where they're able to produce ecosystem goods and services and food and fiber for human flourishing really depends on on rancher well-being, which has quite a bit to do with whether or not they and their family members think they can make a living at this. And when they don't, I know there's a ton of good stuff that's been written and researched about what happens to ranch lands when they're no longer a working ranch. Uh, and it it is not usually to go back to um, pre-European <laughs> wilderness, you know. So whether or not those forty-one percent of lands in the U.S. continue functioning uh, de- depends largely on this social and economic sustainability, and that's a, a very very big question, particularly as we have a wave of baby boomers that are uh, dying and approaching death right now. And a lot of, a lot of the heirs to those ranches don't have a lot of interest in continuing the ranch as a working business. Tip, tip. I think that is a really good point. I mean, we have historic ranches here in Wyoming with no apparent heir. Uh, and it's a big issue. And listen, the provision of open space that working ranches provide is really critically important to just the maintenance of, yeah, open landscapes, biodiversity, uh, air quality, uh, migrations of animals. And, you know, here in Wyoming, um, you know, we really have three tiers to our economy, uh, energy, recreation, and then agriculture. And for agriculture, ranching is a big part of that. So it's important to these small towns and rural communities is really important. But, you know, there's probably never been a better time to think about mental health and well-being and, you know, optimism for the future. And, and I think that's part of this, right? This idea of regenerative agriculture, that's kind of an optimistic uh, mindset. You know, this idea that I'm having a positive impact on these natural resources upon which my children and hopefully my children's children uh, may rely but even for those ranches that don't have an apparent heir, they are eager to see the next generation of ranchers come in and, and continue that. So I, I think the time is right. Maybe some of that's been revealed by COVID to think about mental well-being and optimism and things like that. But um, how we can help, you know, parameterize and feed into that decision making you know, with uh, an eye to the future is really critical. Yeah, and it's one of these issues, kind of like other things in ecology, that operates on thresholds rather than a gradient. You don't necessarily sense 
the the you know the the mental well-being of people that are involved in a ranching business moving toward the tipping point after which it all falls apart you just you just see the tipping point and i'm not quite sure what all is going on right now but in the last 2 weeks i've had phone calls from three investment companies interested in potentially purchasing farms and ranches in central washington and that's brand new for me and i've been doing this for 20 years um you know it's not the guy next door who's saying you know joe's getting old and his kids are all gone can i take on his place can i afford to buy it it's you know it's large corporations that are seeing this as a a long-term investment which may not translate into you know local money staying inside of local communities supporting local businesses and schools and employees and other people and i think there's some i think there's some genuine concern there yeah it's like it's like it doesn't matter until it matters i mean talking about that tipping point or threshold and man when it matters it matters in a big way and yeah the social dynamics uh that we're we're in right now are really uh with their dynamics so uh, is there a a website yet for this project where people can learn some more if they're interested in even just keeping track of what's going on or uh, not yet yeah, I don't think there is one yet. Um, Noble Research Institute um, will will most likely be putting uh, something together on the outreach and the communication uh, for the project. Um, they're they're sort of leading the effort um, along with the Foundation for Food and Ag Research. But uh, uh, I, I think that's very forth. It, it'll be forthcoming, and people will be able to um, sort of follow along. That sounds good. I'm I'm excited to do that. Uh, I think we're about wrapped up. Is there anything else you guys wanted to say that we haven't talked about yet? And if not, then uh, I really appreciate your time. I just thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk about it. It's been a it's been part of Derek and I's life for the last few years trying to to land this jumbo jet or get it off the runway, whichever way you look you think about it. But. Uh, um, it's it's going to be a fun ride, and I'm I'm proud to be a part of it, and proud to be part of this team, and and uh, thank you for having us on. Yeah, ditto, and and thanks for the great podcast tip. I mean, you're really bringing some great awareness and and just insights to rangelands, and appreciate appreciate your innovation in the podcast world. You bet. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Music